Chapter Seven of the Covered Wagon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Covered Wagon by Emerson Huff. Chapter Seven The Jump Off. With the first thin line of pink, the coyotes hanging on the flanks of the great encampment raised their immemorial salutation to the dawn. Their clamorings were stilled by a new and sterner voice, the notes of the bugle, summoning sleepers of the last night to the duties of the first day. Down the line, from watch to watch, passed the plains' command, Catch up! Catch up! It was the morning of the jump-off. Little fires began at the wagon messes or family bivouacs. Men, boys, barefooted girls went out into the dew-wet grass to round up the transport stock. A vast confusion, a medley of unskilled endeavor, marked the hour. But after an hour's wait, adjusted to the situation, the next order passed down the line, Roll out! Roll out! And now the march to Oregon was at last begun. The first dust, cut by an ox-hoof, was set in motion by the whip-crack of a barefooted boy in jeans, who had no dream that he one day would rank high in the councils of his state, at the edge of an ocean which no prairie boy ever had envisioned. The compass-finger of the trail, leading out from the timber groves, pointed into a sea of green along the valley of the Caw. The grass, not yet tall enough fully to ripple as it would a half-month later, stood waving over the black burned ground which the semi-civilized indians had left the fall before flowers dotted it sometimes white like bits of old ivory on the vast rug of spindrift the pink verbena the wild indigo the larkspur and the wild geranium all woven into a wondrous spangled carpet at times also appeared the shy buds of the sweet wild rose loveliest flower of the prairie tall rosin weeds began to thrust up rankly banks of sunflowers prepared to fling their yellow banners miles wide the opulent inviting land lay in a ceaseless succession of easy undulations stretching away illimitably to far horizons in such exchanging pictures of grace and charm as raised the admiration of even these simple folk to a pitch bordering upon exaltation here lay the west barbaric abounding beautiful surely it could mean no harm to any man the men lacked experience in column travel the animals were unruly the train formation clumsily trying to conform to the orders of wingate to travel in four parallel columns soon lost order at times the wagons halted to reform the leaders galloped back and forth exhorting adjuring and restoring little by little a certain system but they dealt with independent men on ahead the landscape seemed so wholly free of danger that to most of these the road to the far west offered no more than a pleasure jaunt wingate and his immediate aides were well worn when at mid-afternoon they halted fifteen miles out from westport what in hell you pulling up so soon for demanded sam woodhull surlily riding up from his own column far at the rear and accosting the train leader we can go five miles further anyhow and maybe ten we'll never get across in this way this is the very way we will get across rejoined wingate while i'm captain i'll say when to start and stop 
but I've been counting on you, Woodhull, to throw in with me and help me get things shook down. Well, it looks to me you're pretty brash as usual, commented another voice. Bill Jackson came and stood at the captain's side. He had not been far from Woodhull all day long. You're a natural damn fool, Sam Woodhull, said he. Who elected ye for train, Captain? And when was it did? If you don't like the way this train's run, go on ahead and make a train of your own, if that's the way you feel. Pull on out tonight. What do you say, Cap? I can't really keep any man from going back or going ahead, replied Wingate, but I've counted on Woodhull to hold those Liberty wagons together. Any plainsman knows that a little party takes big risks. Since when did you become a plainsman? scoffed the malcontent, for once forgetting his policy of favor currying with Wingate in his own surly discontent. He had not been able to speak to Molly all day. Well, if he ain't a plainsman, yet he will be, and I'm one right now, Sam Woodhull. Jackson stood squarely in front of his superior. I say he's talking sense to a man that ain't got no sense. I was with Donovan, too. We found ways, huh? His straight gaze outfronted the other, who turned and rode back. But that very night eight men, covertly instigated or encouraged by Woodhull, their leader, came to the headquarters fire with a joint complaint. They demanded places at the head of the column, else would mutiny and go on ahead together. They said good mule teams ought not to take the dust of ox wagons. What do you say, men? asked the train captain of his aides helplessly. I'm in favor of letting them go front. The others nodded silently, looking at one another significantly. Already cliques and factions were beginning. Woodhull, however, had too much at stake to risk any open friction with the captain of the train. His own seat at the officer's fire was dear to him, for it brought him close to the Wingate wagons, and in sight, if nothing else, of Molly Wingate. That young lady did not speak to him all day, but drew close to the tilt of her own wagon early after the evening meal, and denied herself to all. As for Banyan, he was miles back in camp with his own wagons, which Woodhull had abandoned, and on duty that night with a cattle guard, a herdsman, and not a leader of men now. He himself was moody enough when he tied his cape behind his saddle and rode his black horse out into the shadows. He had no knowledge of the fact that the old mountain man Jackson, wrapped in his blanket, that night instituted a solitary watch, all his own. The hundreds of campfires of the scattered train, stretched out over five miles of grove and glade, at the end of the first undisciplined day, lowered, glowed, and faded. They were one day out to Oregon, and weary withal. Soon the individual encampments were silent, save for the champ or cough of tethered animals, or the whining howl of coyotes prowling in. At the Missouri encampment, last of the train, and that heading the great cattle drove, the hardy frontier settlers, as was their wont, soon followed the sun to rest. The night wore on, incredibly slow to the novice watch for the first time, now drafted under the prairie law. The sky was faint peak, and the shadows lighter when suddenly the dark was streaked by a flash of fire, and the silence broken by the crack of a border rifle. Then again and again came the heavier bark of a dragoon revolver of the sort just then becoming known along the western marches. The camp went into confusion. Will Banyan, just riding in to take his own belated turn in his blankets, almost ran over the tall form of Bill Jackson, rifle in hand. 
What was it, man? demanded Banion. You shooting at a mule? No, a man, whispered the other. He ran that way. Reckon I must have missed. It's hard to draw down into a hindsight in the dark, and I just chanced hit it with the pistol. He was running hard. Who was he? Some thief? Like enough. He was crawling up toward your wagon. I halted him, and he run. You don't know who he was? No, I'll see his tracks come day. Go on to bed. I'll set out a while's boy. When dawn came, before he had broken his long vigil, Jackson was bending over footmarks in the moister portions of the soil. Tall man, young and tracked clean, he muttered to himself. Fancy boots with rather little heels. Shame I done missed him. But he said nothing to Banion or anyone else. It was the twentieth time Bill Jackson, one of Sublet's men and a nephew of one of his partners, had crossed the plains, and the lone hand pleased him best. He instituted his own government for the most part, and had thrown in with his train because that best suited his book, since the old pack trains of the fur trade were now no more. For himself he planned settlement in eastern Oregon, a country he once had glimpsed in long-gone beaver days a dozen years ago. The eastern settlements had held him long enough. The army life had been too dull, even with Donovan. I must be getting old, he muttered to himself as he turned to a breakfast fire. Missed at seventy yards. End of chapter 7